Hey, welcome. Good morning again. If you came in a little bit late, my name's Doug. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in a season of Lent, which helps us prepare for uh, Easter, which is coming down at the, what, the end of, my brain just went blank, the end of March, right? Yeah. Um, And we're in a series called Jesus Final Week, where all the way up to Easter, we're looking at different events, not necessarily in sequence, of things that happened during the final week of Jesus uh, here before um, he was crucified and before he rose again. And this morning, uh, in just a little bit here, um, uh, my pastor, Dave Johnson, uh, well, this is his seventh year in a row where Dave has come down and uh, been a part of uh, Hope and the ministry. Yeah. A few of them appreciate you. That's good. Okay, that's good. Um, uh, but Dave, uh, if you're new to uh, here or um, haven't heard Dave before, Dave pastored Church of the Open Door in Minnesota for 38 years, and then he, pastors don't really retire. Dwayne's proof of this, right? Our pastor yeah, here, yeah. Um, he semi-retired. Now he has a ministry called Things That Remain, and it's a ministry that, among other things, um, helps leaders and pastors to look ahead and to finish well, uh, and he's, uh, I'm benefiting from some of that as well with, with Dave. Um, but more than what he does for ministry, Dave, for me personally, has been um, my, my teacher, my rabbi, really, since 1991 when I was in Bible college and stumbled into that church, and then I went on staff there, and Dave was my pastor for many years, eventually became um, a mentor and a spiritual father to me, and he and his wife, Bonnie, are now some of um, my wife, Heidi, and I's uh, most treasured friends. So today he's got a good word for us, but uh, before Dave comes, uh, Jeannie, will you come? Jeannie's going to come up, and she is going to read the scripture for today. I'm Jeannie Berlowski, and Dave Johnson was also my pastor in Minnesota for 20 years. And if you've ever heard me preach, he was a huge influence on my own preaching. When he preached through the book of Matthew for four straight years, we were there. We even named our firstborn son Matthew. Uh, We stopped short of naming him Matthew 5. (laughs) Let's bring our attention to the word of the Lord this morning. This is a reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter and James and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Sit here and keep watch. Then going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And then he turned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch one hour? Watch and pray so you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And once more he went away and prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, 
The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared, and with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him, and then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. And when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Thanks, Jeannie. Hmm. Thanks for uh, reading that, but you didn't just read it. You kind of acted the whole thing out. I think I need to preach. Um, you know, I'm, I love being back. I, I feel like this is uh, an extension of my home, and Doug and Heidi are dear friends of ours, and just it's a delight to always come back and be in this uh, space. Among the, one of the things I've enjoyed over the years in my teaching and preaching is to come, like this, this text is an example of it, come along st- stories and things in the text that are familiar. And I'm looking forward to this thing I'm going to teach someday, and I kind of know that story. So I think I do know the story because it's familiar, well, a lot like Palm Sunday was last week. I mean, who hasn't heard that story before? You've read the book, you've seen the movie, and so we think we know it. And at one level, we do know these familiar stories, because this one is, too, with Jesus in the garden and the arrest and the betrayal. Um, but there's always more going on than what you see on the surface of these things. There's more than what you can see um, just by glimpsing at it. Because on the first service, on the surface, at first glance, just thinking about last week, the Palm Sunday event, it looks like a great day. If you see Jesus coming into the city, to the shouts of Hosanna, I mean, it looks like a parade, it looks like a party, he looks like a conquering king entering the city after winning a battle, a triumphant entry is actually what it's called by uh, many people who've even written the scriptures, but when you look a little closer to that whole event, and Doug unpacked this last week really well, uh, there's a lot more going on than, than this party thing. In fact, there's certain things that seem to contradict all of that, because even though the crowd is cheering, what makes it, which makes it look this way, at the end of the day, Jesus was weeping. It was weird. Luke 19 says that. That's really incongruent with the party that we thought this was. And the reason Jesus is weeping in part is because he knew something we don't see on the surface of what looked like this party, because he knew they were cheering for him for all the wrong reasons. Um, 
that they really wanted uh, a king who would be a dude on a horse, to use Doug's words last week. What, he want, what they wanted was a conquering king who would deliver them from the tyranny of Rome. And everybody knows if you're going to deliver us from the tyranny of Rome, you need a dude on a horse. Uh, but Jesus rode in on a colt of a donkey, which actually was very intentional and actually prophetic. He was saying something by saying that because what he was saying is I'm not going to be that dude on a horse. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to do that. And he was linking it to the prophecy of Zechariah about the kind of king he would be. And he was saying that without words, which is what prophets often do because Zechariah's prophecy was about a king who would come gentle and riding on the colt of a donkey, not a power over king. Um, and Jesus knew that wasn't what they wanted. I didn't want that kind of king because they told him what they wanted. So he's saying something in his coming in on the cult of a donkey. I'm not going to be the kind of king you want. But they're also telling him the kind of king they want because they threw garments in the road. And that was a very deeply rooted thing for people in Israel, rooted in First Kings, the coronation of Jehu. Uh, a young king who needed to know that the people were accepting him, so they threw garments on the road in front of him, and that was a symbol of, I mean, by the time Jesus does this, they're saying, we want you to be king. We submit to you as such. You can walk on us if you want, um, so we want you to be king, but then they wave these palm branches, and Doug talked about that last week, too, that we see little kids doing that, and just, isn't that cute? It wasn't cute. Palm branches were a symbol of revolt and, and rebellion. Um, in fact, it finds its history and its, its, its roots in the Maccabean War. Uh, 200 years before Jesus came through the, uh, the temple gate, um, the Maccabean revolts had, had had some success. They retook Jerusalem, so people were very excited. And when they came, uh, Mac Maccabeus was the guy. Actually, his nickname was the Hammer. And when he came into the city, having just taken it back for the Jews, um, they called it the triumphant entry because he was. Uh, the conquering king, the hammer had come back, and from that day on, the palm branches became a symbol in Israel of the Maccabean Wars, and when they put palm branches down, they're saying, that's what we want again, we need a hammer again, that's what we want, so Jesus wept, because he knew that what they wanted was that, what they wanted was a power over king, um, and he knew that even now, and that's why he wept, because even now, he knew your eyes are blind to the things that actually do make for peace because you still think it's a war that will make peace and <laughs> never does. History is uh, pretty clear on that. But now try to imagine if you can get into the Palm Sunday thing, we're going to shift to Gethsemane, how alone he had to feel. Coming in, oh, surrounded by people, cheering people. But he knows they don't get it. I don't know if you can get your head into that kind of space, how alone that had to feel. Because all of this Hosanna, Hosanna, which isn't hallelujah, it means save us now, but it's actually a demand. I want you to do this. Uh, it's just so incongruent uh, because he knew they didn't get it. And they knew the crowd would, he knew the crowd would turn, which brings us now to this text where it gets really dark, even darker than that Palm Sunday event to come to this place named Gethsemane that Jeannie just read about. Where he pours out his heart to God, there's kind of intimacy in that. To the Father, Abba, he calls him as the darkness and the weight of what is coming. His suffering and death begin to press in on him. Um, he says to the Father, if there is another way, uh, let this cup pass. He asks that three times. It's kind of a big deal. So this is dark, but it's lonely too. In 
the garden, the loneliness, he picked that up because he invited three of his closest friends. All the disciples came, but they went a little closer, and he brought these three, Peter, James, and John, come with me, and just be with me. That's what I want. You can relate to that. On the human level, I just don't want to be alone. You have to do anything, you guys. Stay here with me, verse 32. Keep watching and pray is all he asked. Then deeply distressed, he said, am I? And troubled, verse 33, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. Um, even to the point of death, verse 34, so just be with me, but they couldn't do it. They fell asleep. Um, but they, they didn't fall asleep because they didn't care. It wasn't because of that. Because their spirit was willing, it says in verse 38, but their flesh was weak. The flesh is weak. It says their eyelids were getting heavy, which isn't a sin. <laughs> it's human. Eyelids get heavy in the middle of the night. Overwhelmed is what they were. I mean, whatever was coming on him, they were so confused. I think it's like being in shock. I think they were shutting down. Some argue that their sleepiness in the garden, Peter, James, and John's, was a metaphor of their unawareness. Could be. Uh, I think they were pretty clueless. <laughs> like, blah, blah, they didn't know what was going on. Oblivious. I kind of picture them uh, metaphorically like little kids. You've got some kids maybe like this who are so lost in a video game while the house is burning down, uh, they, they don't even know what's going on, and, and, and you just want to scream at them, wake up, like that, because the house is burning down, and you're still, still playing a stupid video game, um, which is what I think Jesus is doing in verse 41, when he finds them asleep the third time, and Gina, you did bring some juice to this, because he says, I think really loud, enough, enough, um, wake up, the hour has come, rise up, let's go, but before they could get up and go, um, Indeed, while Jesus was still speaking, verse 43, uh, Judas, who was one of the 12, appeared, and with that appearance, things get darker still. It's like going down a roller coaster. It's like there's no going back now, and even more chaotic, chaotic because Judas didn't come into the garden alone, um, for with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders as well. John's gospel adds this, that Judas was guiding them, which is another kind of stab in the heart. He's kind of, it's over here, you guys. He's guiding them for Judas, for when Judas came to the garden, he was guiding an attachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. A detachment was a cohort of soldiers, like a SWAT team, kind of a crack guard. And officials in the Pharise from the Pharisees were the temple guard carrying torches and lanterns and clubs. Uh, it's in the dark part of the morning before the dawn has come, so it's a very unexpected, it's very chaotic kind of scene. Intimidating, uh, disorienting, but I think chaos is the word for this early morning intervention, this place of darkness just before the dawn, and unraveling of sorts. Because Judas, who was part of the disciples' team, if you will, came with lanterns and torches, with swords and clubs in order to betray him, and he did it with a kiss, verse 44. For the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him, lead him away under guard, then going up to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and he kisses him, a kiss that to this day is called a Judas kiss. Um, an act of betrayal done with a kiss, the feigning of love. We can stop right there and have a talk about what that feels like. Um, 
someone who pretended to, but they didn't really, and they masked it by acting affectionate, takes your breath away. Um, interesting, that Greek word for kiss is kata phileo, um, and it means fervently. It brings a fervency to the kiss. So he's fervently kissing him. He kept on kissing him. It's not the guy on guy thing there. What I'm getting, it's, it's like it's so fake. Um, it's so over the top. He overdid it. He, it was too much. Not just offensive, it's confusing. What are you doing? Stop. Um, uh, so chaos, I think, really is the word that describes this. They had tried to stay awake, but couldn't. They had tried to go to sleep, but couldn't really sleep. When in the middle of the night, just before dawn, all hell broke loose. What? And because they came with swords and clubs and lanterns and torches, a detachment of soldiers and temple guards. But it wasn't just Judas. Here's another spin, maybe something we didn't see on the surface of this story. It wasn't just Judas who betrayed him in this scene. Because Peter, I think, denies him here. And I'm not talking about the denial that's going to come in a few verses later in the text, that same Mark 14. I'm not talking about the I never knew you. That's the famous one that we all know about and think we know that story too. Um, that's going to come later. Here he denies him, I think, when he picks up the sword. Uh, look at it on the screen, verse 47. Then one of those standing near drew out his sword. Well, I wonder who that could be. Well, John tells us, so we don't have to wonder. It was Peter. And Peter struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. I need you to know something about that, cutting off his ear. How did he do that? He just, no, no, I, I promise you, he cut off his ear because he went like this, and the guy ducked, and he cut off his ear, and so he did not have uh, love in his heart when he swung, swung, swung the sword. So here's the deal. When Peter pulls out the sword, something I understand. It's, you know, it's their first instinct. You come in with swords, I'm hitting you with a sword. Uh, he's not betraying Jesus and not pulling out the sword the way Judas did, but, um, and he is not denying Jesus the way he would deny him later. Um, but in picking up the sword, he is denying that he believes that the way of Jesus will ever work. Um, at least not when they come with swords and clubs. Well, if they come with swords and clubs, you need a sword. That only makes sense, because when you've been betrayed, you pick up a sword. When you've been outnumbered, you pick up a sword. When they don't fight fair, you pick up a sword and maybe some clubs. And when it looks like we might lose what some refer to as the culture wars, <laughs> then you pick up a sword. Um, when everyone else is running for cover, because all of them left him and fled, it says in verse 50, you pick up a sword. But not only that, you swing the sword. just makes sense. It's what we know, and it all just sounds so familiar. Um, fascinating, really. When the state senator from Colorado, um, I don't know if you know his name, Lauren Bobert, recently said that if Jesus had an AR-15, I love this, <laughs> that if Jesus had an AR-15, the government wouldn't have killed him. So what we needed, she was saying, and by the way, evangelical is what she calls herself. She was saying this in a Baptist church. So what we need is more AR-15s, and she got a standing ovation for saying that. Oh, stupid stuff. Um, 
Because if the government threatens you, you pick up a sword. If they don't fight fair, we can't fight fair. That's how you do it. It's just what we know. It all makes sense. It's all so familiar. Bonnie and I love watching this show, The Chosen. You guys, is it that at all? Yeah, me too. Doug and Heidi actually got us into this. We were kind of, ah, yeah, maybe I would. Yeah, I like Jesus. He's, okay, um, <laughs> you know. I mean, but yeah, we started binge watching it and just um, got into it really big. Um, well, it took a while to get used to Peter, wearing that little toga as his and looking all buff. I mean, the guy between sets, I think he goes and lifts so his veins are popping and stuff like that, but, but it helped me. So that was the mental picture of Peter, but I kind of shifted that because my mental Peter of, <laughs> of picture of Peter is now Donald Trump Jr. Just work with me. This is a joke, kind of. Um, <laughs> you know, with a really cool beard and the scruffy kind of look, who at Turning Point USA, an event recently here in, actually it was in Phoenix, to a crowd of evangelicals, he famously said this, and the reason I like this is because Peter took a long time to get it, so it was key. <laughs> what he said at this Turning Point event was that the teachings of Jesus have gotten us nowhere. I understand, he said, the biblical reference, no he doesn't, I understand the biblical reference that says turn the other cheek, but it's gotten us nowhere because while they're t- playing t-ball, we're, they're, while we're playing t-ball, they're playing hardball, and if the bad guys are playing hardball, you need to play hardball. You pick up a sword. Uh, that's just how it works. Uh, it's just how you do it. It's what we know. It's also familiar. It sounds just like Peter, but Jesus said, Nope. Sorry, Peter. We're not doing it that way. Not in my kingdom. It doesn't work that way. Um, It's not the way we're going to win this thing. And even if it was, Peter, I love this. I wouldn't use your sword. (laughs) So put away your sword either way. Because I have at my disposal 12 legion of angels if I ask the father. So if we're going to do the power over thing, don't need you. Uh, I'll take care of it myself. One day, then verse 50, they all left him and fled. That is his disciples except for one. I love this. Verse 51, a young man. What's this verse doing in here? Young man was following them wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. Too much information, right? Right. And they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Probably Donald Trump Jr. That's That's what I pictured. Anyway, so there you have it. There's the story and the text. It's kind of familiar. We think we... No, and then I got kind of stuck because there's two directions this, this, this story can go. One would be consistent with what I've kind of unpacked so far, and I would call it the clash of two kingdoms because when they come with swords and spears, they're clashing with the kingdom of God that says, put your swords away. Um, but there's another uh, theme here, and this is the one I'm going to get down into now, because the other theme is what I'm calling this morning the trail of two men's tears. Um, and it's the trail of those tears I want to follow. First, the tears of Peter. Who, when he denied Jesus, particularly the second time, because we don't see his response to this pulling out the sword thing, but when he denies him the second time that he ever knew him, he did it three times. It says in verse 75 of Mark 14, that he went out and wept bitterly, which means he felt remorse a lot. But here's what's weird. About these two men's tears, Judas felt remorse too. Hmm. You see that on the surface of things. 
Uh, indeed, it says in Matthew 27, verse 3, that Judas was seized with remorse, which is part of why I'm calling it the trail of two men's tears, because while both of them had tears, Judas was seized with remorse. Peter wept bitterly. The trail of their tears led to two different places. Kind of weird. There's a lot of theology in this. Um, because the trail of Peter's tears led him to life, ultimately, after some incredible pain. And it led to restoration for Peter. His tears led him to forgiveness and grace and even usefulness in the kingdom of God. In great contrast to Judas, who though like Peter, was seized with remorse. Um, the trail of Judas's tears did not lead to life, restoration, forgiveness, and grace. It led to death and destruction. The question is why? You ever think about that? Like, Judas, he was just evil and bad, and was Judas sin? Think. So much worse than Peter's. Um, is betrayal worse than denial? Just generally. Um, and, and if it is, is that what makes Judas's sin unforgivable? Think about that. And while you do, I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> um, see, I think betrayal is worse. Uh, I, I wanted to say, no, they're just the same. No, I think betrayal is worse, and this is, I think it's weightier. Um, and I'm not making that up. That's a principle uh, Jesus talked about. Um, people who, uh, uh, you tie Dylan Minton cumin, little tiny seeds. You're really careful about that, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. So Jesus himself was saying, there are certain things we do that have more weight. They do more damage than other things we do. Um, Peter's denial, for example, when he was swinging the sword, or even when he was denying that he ever knew Jesus, um, his denial, it feels more like weakness to me. Um, I may be wrong about that, but I, I, I think it's weakness born of fear. It's unintentional. He didn't want to, to do it. He didn't plan it at all. Spontaneous, instinctive Judas betrayal, very different, um, because it was intentional. It was planned. It was premeditated. They made a plan before this all happened. And even in the court of law, secular court of law, uh, premeditated murder is more serious than murder. They're both bad. So yes, the betrayal of Jesus seems worse, at least it does to me, uh, weightier, more grievous, I think, but is it unforgivable? Um, is it beyond the reach of God's grace? This is where it gets personal, because you've got to put yourself in a story. If Judas had come to Jesus... Uh, this is hypothetical. If Jesus had come to Judas after the betrayal and said to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, would Jesus have said, get out of here, dude? No, you went too far. You can't do that. Um, your sin above all other sins was the greatest sin of all. Sin of all. It was beyond the pale, beyond the reach of grace. Unforgivable is what it was. To hell with you, Judas. I mean, if somebody's going to go to hell, it might be him. Might as well be him, right? <laughs> um, but if that's true, what about you? M what about me? Um, I mean, seriously, have I, have you gone behind the pale ever? Uh, are you sitting in something right now that kind of feels like I've gone too far this time? I've done it too many times. Whatever it is, beyond the reach of grace, have you ever done too much? And is it unforgivable? Fact is that Judas's Sin has it all. I mean, all the 
he's actually a type. Uh, he's a type, I think. Um, because not only was it intentional, according to Luke 22 and John 13, it says he was filled with Satan. Okay, that's too much. Uh, Satan had entered him, it says in John 13, verse 27. So he was demon-possessed in some sense, in some way. So is that what does it? Um, is that what puts you beyond the reach of grace? Okay, but if it does, that's where you're leaning, uh, how could Jesus cast out demons if they're beyond the reach of grace? Well, why would Jesus cast out demons? Because he did it all through the book of Mark and all through the gospels. If they're beyond the reach of grace, they apparently, these demon-possessed people that he delivered, weren't beyond his grace. Um, and that's amazing grace, which brings me to the point Wondering when I was going to come to that, didn't you? <laughs> uh, and it's what I think we need to understand, that it wasn't the sin of Judas in and of itself, as if that sin was unforgivable, that put him beyond the reach of grace. What put him beyond the reach of forgiveness and grace was that forgiveness and grace is not what he wanted. It's not what he asked for. It's not what he sought. He was seized with remorse, which is a really good thing. It means he's not a psychopath. He's able still to feel bad, which is really good. You can still feel some pain. You might go to the doctor or go to God. He still has conscience. It hasn't been seared as with a hot iron, but that, because that would put you beyond the pale. If you were no longer feeling anything about the really damaging things you do or say, then you, I don't know how to get that person, um, because that person doesn't know they need grace. They're not looking for grace. So at the risk of oversimplifying this, I think Judas fell for the ultimate lie of Satan. And it works on us as well in greater and smaller ways. A lie that on the front end would entice him into sin making these promises. Or even these suggestions like, oh, Judas, really, your motives are good. Uh, uh, you're doing a good thing. Just spin the whole thing in some weird way. You really do mean well. We know that about you. This is Satan talking in my mind. You're not the bad guy here. You're just misunderstood. This is not a big deal, so Satan is your friend. And you're buying all these lies that are just swimming in your head. But then on the back end, this is kind of how temptation and the fulfillment of it works. After he's invited you into this thing, you know is wrong. On the back end, he starts to damn you. <laughs> and accuse you, how dare you, how could you? And you did that, you did what? Who would do such a thing? And then uh, you need to pay for that, is what the enemy will say. You're gonna pay for that, Judas. Um, indeed, you're never gonna stop paying for that thing you did. You need to make it right. You need to fix it. You need to somehow undo it, which is precisely what Judas tried to do. Here's the rest of the story. He tried to undo it. Matthew 27, verse 3. He returns the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned against innocent blood. And there's his remorse, his confession, if you will. He's trying to fix it. He's trying to make it go away, to wash his hands of this. And while the chief priests and elders don't care at all about him, um, they actually give to him a gift. 
I don't think they meant it this way, but it's a gift that if he would have unwrapped it, it could have saved him. It's when they say, what is that to us? This is your problem, Judas. Um, Go see to that yourself. It says in verse 4 of Matthew 27, because what they're saying is this, you can't do this. Uh, I got a flash for you, Judas. You can't fix this, and you can't undo it. We won't let you. Give us the money back. Don't care. Take it back with you. And the reason that's a gift, I'm saying that to them, though it doesn't feel like a gift on the front end, is because if you realize that you can't undo this and you can't pay it back, (sighs) he would actually be one step closer to the kind of brokenness that's necessary to actually receive grace. Let me explain that with a teaching quickly from the Apostle Paul about what I've called in the, the lawful use of the law. The lawful use of the law. Hang on here. Uh, in, in Paul's day, did this as quick as I can, there were some people, most notably the Judaizers and uh, the sect of the Pharisees, who believed that the law was there for them to look at, and they added the Mishnah to it, all these little things you were supposed to do to get God to like you. But they were there for you to live up to, so that when you did keep the law, live up to the law by keeping the law, you would feel righteous and be able to look down your nose at people who didn't keep the law the way you keep the law, and they would feel righteous, having justified themselves by their keeping of the law, and all of that started in First Timothy 1, where Paul says to Timothy, confronting some people who saw themselves as teachers of the law, they're all over the place, by the way, even today, um, who see themselves as teachers of the law, but who, according to verse 6, are straying from the truth, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, Paul says in verse 7, their problem is this, they don't understand what they're saying, uh-huh or the matters about which they make confident assertions in the reason that bothered Paul, he says in verse 8, is because we know that the law is good if it's used lawfully, properly, uh, appropriately. Question, what's the appropriate use of the law? Turns out there's three things, really quick, three purposes of law. First, it's to reveal sin. Not to live up to it so you can be justified by your keeping it. The first purpose of the law really is to get in your face and say, you already blew it, dude! Romans 3, verse 20. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul said that. Romans 7, verse 7. For I would not have known about sin, even, except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, don't do that. Get it? It's kind of weird language. Let me say it this way. My paraphrase of verses 7 to 11 in Romans 7. So is the law bad? On the contrary. It saved my life, says Paul. It did me a favor because it made me aware I had a problem and it broke through my delusion for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said don't coveting but that don't covet but that revelation that coveting was breaking the law uh, sin that revelation was not a pleasant thing it killed me uh, verse 9 um, says I died I felt like I died see, you read this language and you won't always pick all this stuff apart see I used to feel great about my life Paul saying how many people do you know this will fit Maybe you at certain times. I felt great about my life. Apart from the law that said thou shalt not, I felt fine. Um, Betray a friend? Break a vow? (laughs) Uh, Lie to your face? I could do that. What a problem. I had all sorts of reasons why that was okay. But then the loss that came, and it made sin alive. It doesn't mean it energized me to sin. It made me aware. It made me alive and aware of, oh, Man, I'm full of disease. 
He became aware of it, alive to the fact that it was sin, and when that happened, I died, he said in verse 9, for the first time, felt conviction. Jesus, Judas felt remorse. Um, he was seized by remorse, which is a good sign the law is doing its work uh, so far, but it didn't stop there. The second purpose of the law, second purpose of the law is to produce brokenness. Beyond an awareness of your sin. Uh, its job, the law's job is to convince you that there's nothing you can do about your sin, at least not by yourself, to fix your sin, undo your sin, cleanse yourself from sin. It's the very first beatitude. Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are the broken. Let me break that down quick. Blessed are those who know they can't. It's brokenness. Two key words to understanding. Blessed are the broken. It's people who realize I can't save myself. I can't. I can't. Um, I have gone too far to do that. Blessed are those who recognize they can't fix themselves because they come up hungry for something else like maybe grace, which leads to the third purpose of the law, which is when the sin is revealed and you realize you can't fix it, it drives you to Christ and grace, which is your only possible hope. Galatians 3.24 says it this way, that the law is actually our tutor, um, whose job it is to drive us to Christ so we may be justified by faith in his work, not in our work. Uh, the word tutor is significant. It's a Greek word, paedagogos, and it literally was a slave. Uh, landowners would often have servants or slaves, and the job of the paedagogos was to drive the kids to school. This is one of the things they had to do. And by drive, I don't mean get in the minivan. I mean drive them like cattle and with a rod in their hand. Wacko, 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 stay on the path, getting you to school. The law's job was to beat the living daylights out of you. Uh, and that basically, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. You already did, you already did, you already did. And that condemnation sounds horrible, but hopefully it doesn't drive you to, yes, I will, I'll change forever. Shut up. <laughs> you, you, need, you need to come to a place where you realize you can't, and it'll drive you to Christ. The grace that's there by fixing it or undoing it or paying for it somehow yourself. The problem for Judas was not just his sin. It was somehow unforgivable. And that somehow put him beyond the reach of grace. What put him beyond the reach of forgiveness and grace was that grace and forgiveness was not what he wanted. It's not what he asked for. It's not what he sought. He was trying to undo it, fix it. Uh, Judas was seized with some remorse, but it didn't lead to brokenness. It didn't lead to, I can't, I can't fix this. Um, I can't undo this. I can redeem this myself. So he returned the 30 pieces of silver. And at some level, there's some speculation on this, um, that he was trying to suicide by doing that. When he talks about, I shed innocent blood, that's a confession. And he goes back to these guys who arrested and were about to crucify Jesus and they were the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, as badly as they behaved here, there were some very clear um, protections in the law. I mean, in the legal system of Israel. Because the Sanhedrin had this thing that if you would bring a charge against someone, and it turns out that they were innocent, and you charged them of something that was a capital crime, the person who witnessed falsely uh, would get the punishment that was intended so you're... There's some speculation that he, by giving the things back, knowing the system, they'll put me to death, which is what he wanted, because he wanted to pay for this. He wanted to fix this, and at some level, it makes sense. I'd even look noble and good. I need to make amends. I need to make this right. 
but they wouldn't let him. <laughs> no, we're not going to just give you back. Get out of here. Um, my dad used to say there's some mistakes you only make once, and then you just have to live with them. You can't undo them. Um, it's a horrifying thing when you do something you can't undo. It wouldn't hurt you to think about those times you've done that. I mean, as a kid, you know, you, you wreck your dad's car. <clears throat> I don't have enough money to <laughs> undo that one before he sees it. can't undo it. Um, you can't unhit your spouse. You can't unrob a bank. You can't uncommit adultery. <sighs> you can't unlose your job. You can't undeny uh, what you denied. You, you, you can't unbetray the one you betrayed. You can't uh, do it. But what if when, um, what if when Judas heard those guys saying to him by throwing the coins back, uh, keep your money, you can't undo this. What if what he heard then was another voice, a voice he had heard for at least three years every day for three years saying things like, blessed are the broken you heard it from day one. And those who mourn and those who know they can't come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I'll give you grace. For I came not to condemn you, Judas, but to save you. Even now. So Judas, repent and believe that the gospel is true. Even for you, turn around and believe that the good news, that you are loved by God for free, even now, is of all the glad things in this world, the gladdest thing of all, but here's the deal, Judas, a bruise, because here's the deal, a bruised reed I will not break off, and a smoldering wick I will not snuff out, and I may be wrong, but I don't think um, that what kept him away from saying I can't and asking for mercy and was, I don't think it was cynicism, I don't think it was sarcasm or anger, I think it was shame. Forgiveness for, for free? I want to earn it. Grace. Um, undeserved. Um, I can't. I can't uh, take that. I've gone too far. I've done too much. Matthew twenty-seven, verse four is when he said, "I have sinned by betraying innocent blood." He's confessing, and if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Right? But Judas brought that confession to the chief priests, not to Jesus. And again, he was looking for them to make him pay. And it finally dawned on him, I can't pay. I can't undo it. And instead of moving to grace, he decided, I am going to pay. I am going to pay. So he did. And he went out and hanged himself. And that's the way to pay. Um, Matthew 27, verse 5. And then I hear a voice again. This time in Luke 19, 41. And Jesus is weeping. Like Doug talked about last week. Oh, Jerusalem. Oh, Judas. How often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Let me. I'm going to ask a worship team to come and those who are serving communion to find your place at the tables as I just kind of wrap this up and point us to the table. Um, I want you to think about Judas as a type who sometimes is like you and sometimes is like me. And the Judas maybe isn't just evil and vile. He did a vile thing. He did an evil thing. He isn't just disgusting. Far more tragic is his story when you get past the first glance 
of it because I'm pretty sure um, that for betrayal there is forgiveness. I'm pretty sure about that. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that for bondage, even demonic, there is deliverance from that. But deliverance, including forgiveness and grace, is not something you access by trying to undo what you've done, trying to pay back what you owe. So how are you doing today? Because um, there's something I know about you. <laughs> all of you. Um, we all had a debt we couldn't pay. Um, we all have done things we can't undo. Here's the invitation. Quit trying to undo it. I mean, this, today could be your day of liberation when you quit hiding it and quit trying to undo it and repay it or somehow deserve it and surrender to grace. Listen to Henry Nouwen's quote as I close. When the night is bad and my nerves are shattered and infinity speaks, when God Almighty shares through his son the depth of his feelings for me, when his love flashes into my soul and I'm overtaken by mystery, it's time to decide. Shivering in the rags of my 59 years, I decide either, either to escape into skepticism or run into intellectualism or to, with radical amazement, surrender, oh, surrender in faith to the truth that I am loved by God. So here's the invitation, very simple. Come to the table, all you who are thirsty. All you who are thirsty, come and drink. All you who have no money, nothing to offer, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Isaiah 55, come to the table right here, right now for the grace you need.